Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. David Chow, director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, I have the great distinction and honor to have a conversation with Dr. Carolyn Chen, who is Associate Professor of Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies and Comparative Ethnic Studies at Cal Berkeley. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you, David. Good to be here. And we are today discussing Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley, published by Princeton University Press. This is an exciting new book. It seems to take a slightly different direction from Carolyn's earlier book, Getting Saved in America, which I use in my Asian American theology courses. And we are uh, gonna have a conversation about this, this new book, Work, Pray, Code. So Carolyn, I thought one way to get into the claims of your book is simply to set the table. Some of the personal background and intellectual journey that led you from your book, Getting Saved in America, to Work, Pray, Code. Tell us a little bit about the personal background and your journey into this, this uh, new book of yours, Work, Pray, Code. Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. My first book is called Getting Saved in America, and it's about Taiwanese immigrant um, religious conversion to evangelical Christianity and Buddhism. So it's about how immigrants convert to Buddhism and Christianity after they move to the United States. And I am trained as a sociologist of religion. And the larger question is, you know, what is contemporary religious experience? What is contemporary spiritual experience in the West today? And so I started the project by um, spending time um, in yoga studios, actually, because, okay, so you go into a yoga studio, it's supposed to be secular, right? So this is a secular space. We think of yoga studios as being about fitness, like therapeutic, you know, wellness, well-being, etc. But if you go into many yoga spaces, you see religious icons. And these might be, you know, Ganesh. Uh, there might be an icon of um, Guanyin Bodhisattva, so Buddhist and Hindu images. You might also be chanting some Hindu mantras or et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's a presence of these religious things in these spaces. And these are practices, yoga and the mantras, they're all religiously inspired. They come from religious roots. And so I first started conducting um, interviews among folks who were um, practicing yoga. And what I came to discover was that sure, they were using these religious practices yoga, they were chanting mantras, but that wasn't their religion. What I mean by that is that you can ascertain, you can discern religious behavior by people's behavior, meaning the question for me is always like, well, what do they sacrifice for? You know, what do they devote their lives to? What are they willing to give up for? Sacrifice is a very fundamental and basic practice in all religious traditions. In Christianity, you know, the practice of renunciation, 
uh, in the monastic traditions. This is also the same case as in Buddhism too. And when I had studied Taiwanese immigrant Christians and Buddhists, it was very clear that their religious practices involved sacrifice and renunciation. And for Christians in particular, their renunciation was actually their loyalty to their kin family, their blood family in Taiwan, not being able to participate in ancestral worship anymore. So they all had to give something up. That is a fundamental aspect of religious behavior is giving something up. But it was really clear when I would look at yoga practitioners that they weren't giving anything up. That was, they weren't giving anything up for yoga. Um, Look, when you study religious people, they give up their time, they give up their money, they give up, they sacrifice maybe familial relations, they, they fast, right? They give up food in order for religious practices, but no one was giving up anything for yoga. And the more I talked to them, it really became clear to me that there was something else that they were giving up. And, they, and there was this thing that came through in all of these interviews, which was that yoga helped them recover from work, A, and made them better workers. <laughs> and so what was really clear was that what they were worshiping was, wasn't anything religious in the sense that we understand as a religious tradition, it was work and they were using their yoga in order to worship their work better, to become better workers, to recover from work. And then it became really clear that who, what they were sacrificing was for work. They would say, well, you know, I get these headaches, I have these pains in my body. So they were sacrificing their bodies in order to work and yoga was this sort of therapeutic practice in order to help them work better. And so that's where this question started to lead, for me, was kind of like leading me towards thinking, well, wait, maybe I have, maybe I'm not looking at the right phenomenon. Here I am thinking about, let me look at religious traditions and secular spaces, right? In order to understand what's religious. But then that led me to actually look at work culture in Silicon Valley. And it became really clear after spending more time in tech work spaces that, and, and interviewing um, tech workers that it was work that was their object of their devotion and sacrifice and worship. Um, and other things such as religion or yoga were actually ancillary, helping them, supporting them in that worship of work. That is fascinating. Uh, who would have known that doing yoga would lead to a research project? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you also one thing that is a sociologist, it was really kind of hard to study yoga because sociologists study institutions um, and yoga wasn't really an institution. And it was really clear too that yoga wasn't organizing anyone's life in the way that religion does. You know, um, it was not making any demands on people's life. It was sort of like, come in, come out if you want, you know, co- you know, come in and practice as you want. And that's not what, that's not how religion behaves, okay? We could call it, it might've been inspired from a religious tradition, but it wasn't sacred. And that's sort mm-hmm. of that Dukamian sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that the question that my book really gets at is what is sacred today? You know, what mm-hmm. is sacred? And sacred and religion might not be the same things. 
Right. What is sacred and what is religion it might not be the same things. That's what I'm saying. Thank you for that nice segue into um, the book proper. So let's let's talk about some of the main claims of work, pray, code. You've already alluded to some of them, but maybe you could just break down the the main arguments of the book and some of the evidence and and new findings that your book shows us. Sure. The main argument of my book is that work is replacing religion. And my book is based on um, over 100 interviews with tech workers, um, executives, folks um, in HR and tech companies, um, as well as uh, mindfulness teachers, uh, executive coaches, the people who support the tech workers as well. So over 100 interviews with those folks and then over five years of um, ethnography in Silicon Valley culture. This is in companies, but also in um, specifically looking at like mindfulness and work conferences and executive coaching spaces. So my book is about Silicon Valley work culture specifically, um, but it uses Silicon Valley as a window to identify a larger trend that I'm arguing has happened, is happening, um, in the United States and arguably in other Western industrialized countries that's really happened in the last 40 years. And so what we see happening starting in around um, 1970, 1980 is this is the expansion of work. And what I mean by that is work is taking more and more uh, that essentially for, and this is specifically for high skilled workers, okay? college educated, um, highly skilled workers, professionals, I could just say professionals here, that they are spending more time at work than they ever did before. So that the beginning of white collar work, that when it, this expansion of white collar work in the 1940s and 50s, white collar workers were working about, they're working 40 hour days, okay? And they worked nine to five in the office, and then they had their lives outside of the workplace. They built their lives outside of the workplace. But what we see happening in the 19, you know, in the later 1970s into the 1980s is that professionals, highly skilled workers are devoting more and more hours to work. So that the majority of professionals now are working over 48 hours a day. 48 hours a week, which is considered by sociolog sociologists to be overwork. Um, and so they're devoting more of their lives to work. But at the same time, what we see is that work is changing in meaning. So it's, you know, we have a very developed vocabulary, a, a way of talking about work in Western society and in the United States about work kind of like sucking the soul and exploiting and drawing from you. But what we also see are changes in the workplace that are happening in the last 40 years where work is becoming more meaningful. And it's mm -hmm. actually fulfilling needs for identity, belonging, community, meaning, purpose, and transcendence. These are the needs that Americans at one time turn to religion to fulfill, or other civic um, institutions, private institutions, family, neighborhoods, clubs, associations, churches, et cetera, et cetera. So we see this larger pattern of the expansion of work in the lives of, of, of white collar professionals, not only taking more of their time, 
but giving more, fulfilling more of their needs. Okay, and to just um, give a little, just a little bit more context here is that what we also see happening in the last 40, 50 years is a shift to a knowledge economy, you know, a post-industrial knowledge economy, the rise in globalization um, in a global economy. So there's much more competition among firms. And so we actually exchange a change in the structure of work and workplaces itself. So, and, and also very much in management. So we see these changes that are going on where companies are learning that, you know, it used to be that, you know, the, um, sort of the model of management was Taylorism, which is, you know, how do we get workers to most work most efficiently on a, mm -hmm. um, on a factory line, for mm -hmm. instance, okay, because most workers were not skilled. But now in a knowledge economy, the question is, how do we get people, how do we build people's human capital? How do we get people's discretionary effort, their enthusiasm, <laughs> their energy, and their skills? Well, mm. that requires a kind of management of the interior that is very different from mm. the kind of management of labor that we had in earlier years. The new management of the post-industrial areas is essentially a management of meaning. How do we make work meaningful? Mm. Um, there's one great line. It's a quote from a Harvard Business Review article, and this, uh, you know, management guru says, "Meaning is the new money." Yeah, and he's basically yeah. saying, you know, people aren't. Um, you could toss more people more money, and that might not incentivize them. It's meaning now. It's finding meaning through work. Okay, so we're seeing this trend that's happening in the workplace, and that's specifically happening with um, highly skilled professionals, you know, where work is, again, taking more of their time and energy, but also giving more, filling more of their needs. Hmm. On the other hand, what we see is this trend um, of the decline in religious participation and religious affiliation um, in the United States in the last four years. It's been very well documented, particularly like by people like political scientist Robert Putnam. And which is, which is in part a larger trend of the decline in civic participation in general in the United States. So essentially what we're seeing is a shift for a particular population in America, um, an elite population of workers, where the shift uh, might have used to be, might have been from civic organization, from pouring their energies and devotion um, into these organizations that used to be um, in um, civil society and mm -hmm. non-economic institutions. Mm -hmm. um, they pour their energies into them, but they were also fulfilled by them. And instead mm -hmm. a, a shift now into the, that focus and energy being pulled and attracted into work organizations. Um, so that's this larger, you know, this larger shift that I am that I am seeing uh, being played out in a place like Silicon Valley, where I think that in many ways the um, is more extreme, but it allows us to see the pattern more clearly. You know, Silicon Valley has places like 
you know, they, they bring they bring Buddhist monks <laughs> into the office. They have meditation. They have mindfulness. They have they offer spiritual retreats to their workers. I mean, these are things that are sort of on the extreme side of the spectrum, but give us insight into these larger trends that are on the way that have been long time in the making um, in in America to to make it more clear that what we're seeing that's happening with companies is that. A, you know, they're providing identity, belonging, meaning, purpose, the needs that religions used to fulfill, but they're also taking up the spiritual, uh, the pastoral functions of spiritual care and development um, that I see, that I argue that, you know, religious institutions have been doing because they now see spirituality as a competitive advantage. It's a way to make their workers more productive. What is fascinating from this discussion so far is that your research is empirically driven. You've got the hundred um, interviews, you've got five years of ethnography, but from the sort of inductive and, and case-based studies, you're generating some larger theses. I, I hear a story here about what is happening, sort of the internal logic of capitalism itself, mm -hmm. right? So there's there's a thesis here about capitalism becoming late capitalism, to borrow your phrase in the book, and the life of its own that it takes on to provide some type of ultimate end or, or purpose or, or identity. And you use it to describe the new knowledge economy, which, mm -hmm. which has been taking place in the last 40 years. So that, that in, in and of itself, is a very significant thesis, but you tie it to a religious thesis about, yes, most pastors that I talk to notice um, there's less church attendance today than there was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you help explain some of that uh, anecdotal uh, wisdom that many religious leaders feel. It's just a tougher market nowadays to get people mm -hmm. to show up at temple or church or what have you. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense now, given this economic evolution where mm -hmm. companies are seeking not just to provide wages, but also meaning. Wow. Yes. When they absolutely. do that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, David, you see um, where you see religious participation and religious affiliation the lowest happens to be in these what... Um, a scholar, urban studies scholar, Richard Florida calls um, human capital clusters. So these are places like the Bay Area, Boston, New York City, right, where you have the emergence of these concentration of knowledge economies, essentially. And so we need to think about how the development of these of these uh, of these economic centers are also providing a different kind of religious and spiritual life for these folks too, because essentially these companies um, and these economic organizations are providing for the needs that once you know other civic, including religious organizations, were providing. So here's here's a somewhat of a technical religion nerd question. Yeah, I'll just try my best to ask it. Would you say that these religious and spiritual practices within these Fortune 500 tech companies, do they make the companies religions or is their religious practice a semblance of religion? 
So is it the genuine artifact or is it a semblance of it? How, how do you begin to parse what a religion is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that it's so hard to put a finger on um, defining religion. So I like to define religion by what it does, you know, by the function and what it does to people. And I think that if we look at the definition of religion in the United States, you know, from a sociological perspective, what does it do? As an organization, it gives people identity. It, it has a very strong social function in the United States. And that, that's what I would argue. That's the reason why religion has persisted in the United States where it has declined in other Western industrial uh, uh, you know, countries. Um, and the United States has always been sort of exceptionally religious because of that unique social function that religion plays. Um, so what does religion do in the United States? What does religion look like in the United States? Well, um, it gives people a sense of identity, meaning and belonging com in community. This is what it does. You know, we could also parse it out and say like, well, it, you know, there is a belief system, there's a mission, there's ethics, um, but hey, guess what? That's the part, every Fortune 5 company has one of those too now, they have a mission. <laughs> They have a mission, they have ethics, they have practices, they have an origin story, and they have a charismatic leader. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> um, yeah, that's right. And so what I so what I actually call tech companies in my book, I say that they're the new faith communities. They're the faith communities wow. of Silicon Valley. Wow. To give you a little bit more evidence here is one of the things that I you know, like when you write a book, it's not like the story, the narrative is like, boom, you suddenly figure out, you know, this is your argument. But there were hints along the way, you know, little pieces of evidence along the way. And there was a pattern that really, really struck me, David. And it's that mm -hmm. I noticed, okay, first of all, let me just back, back up here. Most people from Silicon Valley are not from Silicon Valley. Most tech workers are not from there. They moved mm. it from somewhere else. So they are migrants. Okay, so this is really, this is what connects to my earlier book. I noticed that everyone's story was a story essentially of migration. And because I'm a scholar of immigration and religion, I'm really sensitive to how religion changes in the process of movement. Um, and they told me, uh, everyone, well, so many people told me a similar story. I used to be religious, but after I moved to Silicon Valley and started working, I'm no longer religious anymore. And here's the thing, it wasn't a crisis of faith and mm. no one could really tell me exactly why they weren't religious anymore. You know, it wasn't like, no, I still believe in God. I still believe, you know, when I go home, yes, I do practice Shabbat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, it wasn't that they didn't believe anymore, but mm. here's the difference. It was a change in belonging. Mm. They didn't belong. It was a different faith community they belonged to. They didn't belong anymore to that church or that temple or that synagogue anymore. They belonged to the faith community of work. And, um, and you know, there was one person in particular who his narrative I write about because it was so striking. He used to be the president of his Christian fraternity in Georgia. So very, really quite evangelical, very, very active in his church. 
And then he came, he moved to, the, to, uh, to Silicon Valley and started working at a tech company. And he basically transferred, he channeled his religious fervor into the company. You know, he talked about having to have faith that his startup was gonna be that one out of 10 that it was either gonna be acquired or IPO. He talked about the burden, you know, Christians talk about the religious burden, you know, a burden, especially missionaries, but instead his burden was creating technological products to change the world. You know, he's like, we just have this burden. They broke bread together. They have meals, you know, they have their practices. They have practices of sacrifice uh, where, you know, they pull all-nighters, they don't eat, they don't date, etc., for the sake of this larger transcendent goal of work. And believe me, they experience those same bonds of, you know, what Durkheim calls collective effervescence, that feeling of bonding and connection that folks and faith communities do too when they're working so hard towards the shared goal. When you share some of your research back to mm -hmm. the tech folks you interviewed and you mm -hmm. present to them perhaps a new picture of their work environment as religious, mm -hmm. so their tech company as a faith community, a religious gathering place that generates belonging and identity, do they, how do they feel when you say that to them? Do they have a cognitive dissonance and they say, no, we're not religious or yeah, that actually makes sense. We are like a religion. How are people responding when you present that thesis? So when I talk to tech workers about this, um, most of them are sort of like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's right. Most of the people that I have spoken to so far are it resonates with them. And here's you know really interesting thing is that they themselves use the language of drinking the Kool-Aid. And, <laughs> and they yeah. have these self-conscious jokes about being a cult. So this is already in their consciousness and they make hmm. sort of jokes about it, right? Which it says something when you make a joke about something that's a little on the edge there. They know that there is some, they know that there's some truth to it, but they also understand that um, the rate of failure is so high that you need something um, that that you need something that goes beyond the human to, to push people. <laughs> they're, Interesting. They're, you know, they're, they need, they realize they need faith. They realize they need to drink the Kool-Aid. That's what they tell me. You know, let me riff off of the the cult um, reference. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of slyness in the cult remark because cults have a negative valence to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's yes. there, there's a shadow side here. Yes. yes. And I think you begin to. I didn't finish reading Tectopia, the the concluding chapter, but even the language of Tectopia mm -hmm. kind of limbs this shadow side. Can you can you maybe yeah. say a little bit more of the shadow side of late capitalism. Sure. So what I call techtopia is, um, <laughs> I call it, you know, in the book, I call it um, one of Silicon Valley's most disruptive social operating systems. <laughs> and essentially it is, an, it is an engineered society 
where work is the highest source of human fulfillment. And I, you know, I want to emphasize, I use engineer, you know, having a double meaning here, of course, but I want to just point out that this is a society that we do engineer, we create this. Um, it is not simply a given. Okay, so what I mean by, so techtopia, so it's a sense where um, work, a society where work is the highest form of human fulfillment. And, um, and yes, I identify the shadow side because I think that, you know, when I would talk to people in Silicon Valley and when I talk to most people, and I struggle with this myself living in the world we live in today is, well, what's the problem with people being insanely happy and fulfilled at work and finding, yeah. you know, finding purpose and meaning and happiness at work? Why should we care? In a sense, the thing is, is that it's such a ludicrous question because isn't that what we all want? And in many ways, I would argue that Tectopia is the 21st century American dream. So what is the shadow side? So what I see happening in Silicon Valley in very stark relief is that I argue that what's going on is like if we were to compare work and work institutions are like alpha institutions and they're like super strong magnets in society. So say if we were to, you know, scatter metal um, fillings all around a table and each of these pieces of metal represents the individual energy, resources, devotion of every single person, okay? So this is sort of like a metaphor for the way our energies uh, are, are used in society. And if we were to map out what, how those energies, um, how energy and devotion looks like in Silicon Valley, you'd have this huge magnet called work and all the and all the metal would be, and all of the energy and resources and devotion and time of the community would be attached to this huge metal of the workplace. Now you have these other institutions which are weaker magnets. This is church, this is family, this is neighborhood. This is political association. This is, you know, Robert Putnam's bowling league, okay? These magnets have grown smaller and weaker in comparison. So this is what, if we were to map out, you know, kind of the social collective energy and devotion of people, this is what it, this is what it looks like in Tectopia. Now, you know, the question of why is this a problem? I argue that this, it, it's impoverished our civic and public institutions. And it's really clear if you just look as, as I talk about that relationship between work, work and religion, but it's impoverished these because all of our fulfillment and meaning is now located in the workplace. And very specifically in Silicon Valley, what you also see is that the workplace and these tech companies have garnered so much uh, like financial control and resources that all other institutions and people in order to survive need to cater to the workplace. And this is one of the dangers that I specifically see with religious institutions. Um, I call it the phenomenon of getting Google, of, I call it getting Google money. And if you are in the Bay Area, 
<laughs> if you're in the Bay Area, David, everyone wants Google money. Everyone wants a piece of it. However, in order to get Google money, you have to figure out how you can, how you can make yourself useful to Google. So what I witnessed when I was in Silicon Valley was Buddhist priests, Christian pastors, schools, yoga teachers, mindfulness instructors, restaurants, everyone trying to figure out how they can cater to Google's needs and the, the, the needs of tech companies. And their concern and the concern of their workers is about how do I optimize my productivity? So this is really, I'm sure, you know, if you read anything on mindfulness these days, secular mindfulness, it's all about how can I use mindfulness to optimize myself, right? Well, in, in the Bay Area and in companies, and this is not just Silicon Valley, everyone's concerned about how you could use mindfulness and meditation to optimize your productivity. And so this is what I see is being a, a consequence. This is the shadow side of Techtopia as well, is that I saw schools, I saw mindfulness instructors, they suddenly were sort of like, okay, how do I, how do I fit this into Google's needs? And how do I, how do I make meditation, you know, how do I um, translate into utilitarian logic so it can be instrumental and make people more productive. I saw Christian pastors who were saying, people don't have time to go to church. How do I bring uh, the ministry now to the workplace? Uh, a Buddhist priest told me, people aren't coming anymore. They don't have time to meditate. So I better, I need to bring it to the workplace. But here's what happens, David, is that the workplace now becomes this locus of fulfillment and meaning. And it's also now um, you see religious and spiritual providers um, kind of bringing their wares, right, to the gates of, of the workplace as well. And the tech company and these corporations that kind of have now monopolized the resources of the community they only serve the meritocratic elite. They only serve people, you know, high-skilled workers, people who have uh, quote-unquote sort of earned or deserve this kind of life and this kind of comfort. And so what happens is that if you bring Bible study to the workplace and you're you know, you're investing more of your resources in developing a workplace ministry. Well, guess what? In the workplace, the only people who could go to that Bible study, it's not the janitors, it's not the cafeteria workers, it's not the bus wow. drivers, it's only the engineers, right, who are salaried workers. So what you're actually doing is you're exacerbating inequality. Um, you know, inequality here in the Bay Area is one of the, it's, it's, it's worse than in almost any other place in the country. It's, it's, it's one of the most unequal places in, in the United States. But you exacerbate that so that inequality is no longer simply about economic inequality, but it's also about inequality in meaning, fulfillment, and community. You see, if we impoverish and disinvest in these other institutions, which are more democratic, and more public, right, available for everyone. And instead, we concentrate them in these institutions like the Googles, like the link, 
LinkedIn and Facebooks where, you know, you have to have an engineering degree from a top 10 university. What it does is that it really, um, it, it makes exclusive the social and spiritual goods of the good life. And this is exactly what we're seeing in, um, there's a book that came out uh, last year or a year, uh, two years ago called Deaths of Despair by uh, two um, Princeton economists. I'm forgetting their names, but um, <laughs> Annie, Casey and Deaton, I think. And they talk about this issue of deaths of despair that we're in a moment where we're seeing higher rates of suicide, drug overdose among white Americans than we've ever seen before. And part of the argument is that they've been lost in these, they've been left behind in this new knowledge economy. And my take on this is that they've been left behind from being able to participate in these economic institutions, but they've also been left behind and they now no longer have access to the social and spiritual benefits that we've now connected with these, that, that these economic institutions have a monopoly over or colonized because we have collectively disinvested from other institutions such as our neighborhoods, our churches, our you know, communities and community associations. So that's sort of my larger, you know, my larger argument here. That's fascinating. Uh, the magnet imagery is super helpful to illustrate the snowball effect mm -hmm. of what happens when we uh, not simply prioritize work, work efficiency, but make it absolute. Because religion is in some sense about the absolute or what takes overriding uh, dominance or mm -hmm. or loyalty or sacrifice right and by weakening other social institutions and privileging a particular form of work order towards the bottom line so there's a mm -hmm. profit incentive that structures capitalism there's a loss to what it means to be human so mm -hmm. as a theologian mm -hmm. one of the questions that has been coming in my mind, as I listen to your description, is about anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. And is our humanness really, truly, ultimately, and absolutely fulfilled with being better employees in a tech company? And part of the shadow side is, no, we need schools, we need families, we need even bowling clubs um, mm -hmm. or basketball courts, uh, in my case. We, mm -hmm. we need synagogues and churches and temples these additional goods are part of what it means to be human so there's there's a question about goods how they're coordinated what is an ultimate good um i want to pivot towards the sort of takeaway points and i want to focus on what i imagine some of my audience to be which would be church uh folks church leaders and pastors, uh, especially Asian American Christians and Asian American pastors. So what do you think pastors can learn and take away from, from the insights of your book? Yeah, let me, let me talk a little bit about the Asian American component of this, because I think that, um, so what I'm trying to do in this book is um, name 
and identify a larger trend that I think is really the waters that we swim in these days, especially if you are a high, you know, high skilled professional. Um, and we don't have a name for it. We don't even, and I, I think that most religious leaders and not just religious leaders, most Americans just take it as a given. This is the, this is the world that we live in. We just got a deal. And, um, and I think that there is a, the piece for Asian Americans is, especially for people who are coming from immigrant backgrounds or children of, you know, second generation, children of immigrants, is that I think this, the meaning of work is even more intensified for them because of the model minority the experience, um, it's part of the immigrant experience of the narrative of um, parents sacrificed for you and the way that you repay back is by getting a high status job, a high status, high paying job. And that work is your, is your form of identification and it's your, the way that you give back to your family and you give back to your community. So layered in with already sort of these secular definitions of work is that very racial, racially specific and a very intimate understanding of work as well, which I think gives work even more weight <laughs> in people's lives. Work becomes a way of exercising filial piety. That's, yes, that's exactly. It is. It's a way of exercising filial piety too. So it has these takes on these other valences and um, and work that mean takes on even a larger meaning, right? It, it's 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 the way that you fulfill, you know, yes, your your duties to your parents, and so I think that really really looms large in Asian American culture, particularly among upper middle class uh, Asian Americans and, and 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 Asian American congregations and faith leaders. Um, I'm sure recognize this already and they have to deal with this in different ways. Now, in my, so I did also talk to faith leaders um, in my project. And I will tell you that people understand this is happening, but again, don't have a name for it. There's one pastor called, there's a volunteer challenge in his, in his congregation because people don't have the time, they don't have the energy to volunteer in the church anymore, right? So, so it's something that people are facing. It's very much of a challenge that they struggle with. And so, okay, I'm totally losing my train of thought. So the question is what, what is the message? What is the message that I wanna to give to, you know, it, how might they learn? How might, how might Asian American faith right. leaders- Right, what, what I'm hearing, there's, there's two ways of my framing the question. One was broadly for, religious leaders, pastors, faith leaders, as you're saying, across racial communities, um, what, what might they take away? And then specifically Asian American faith people and faith leaders. And you sort of addressed the second one already okay. through the model right. minority intensification mm -hmm. of the work drive. Yeah. Um, and I'm already hearing your answer to the first one, which is leaders of religious communities, if part of their task is to serve their congregation or their, their, their community, they have to understand what the community is going through. 
Yes. And you are laying out a narrative and a description of modern society in America that is highly uh, um, run by work. Yes, and yes. They can't effectively shepherd their flock if they don't know what the flock is becoming. That's kind of- Exactly, exactly. They don't know what the other God, let's just say that, they're, that, they're, that their flock is worshiping. And here's the thing is that I think that pastors know this intuitively, actually. They might not have named it and they might not have, and they might not, see the thing is if it's the waters that you swim in, you don't necessarily see this as a competing, something that's competing, right? And so I think that what my book has to offer is to name this trend and to say that this is happening. And I would also say to confront it because what in, in some of my talks with faith leaders, they were, re, they were reluctant. Um, they didn't know how to talk about work um, mm. and how to confront it because it's so ubiquitous. It's mm -hmm. so accepted. It's not, it, it, it's not seen as, it's seen as just a normal part of life um, and that people would be resistant to it also because we have this larger um, kind of narrative of meritocracy in our country that, okay, I work so hard. I went to an Ivy League institution. I should be, now, I, now I'm working at this you know, corporation and putting in all these hours and it's so fulfilling and it's giving me status. Like that, that's part of, that, that's sort of some of the stuff we don't talk about, but that is all part of the American dream, right? It's not just having the house and the picket fence, but it's having the status that comes with it. And so pastors aren't necessarily identifying it. And not only that, what I see is that um, pastors, some Christian leaders, um, and here I'm just gonna put this out as something to be provocative, okay? And to think about are colluding with it um, and reinforcing it. Because here's interesting things that I see in the movement in, when we talk about, when, when faith leaders, when Christian leaders talk about work and faith, they don't talk about it as, they always talk about it as something to integrate, correct? Yeah. Make your work more meaningful. Make your faith, your work more a part of your faith. So it's never questioning whether work should be meaningful. It's always make it more meaningful, infuse it with even more meaning. So here we have corporations, secular society already making work very, very meaningful. And Christian leaders are saying, okay, to be a good disciple here, let's now overlay it with Christian meaning. And to me, that's something that I wonder, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I, they're not asking the other question, which is, which is the question I'm asking. You know, what does the worship of work take from the worship of God? You know, what does it cost us? What does it cost us as a society? What does it cost us as a faith community? And instead, there's more of the investment in work, which is the conversation that I see uh, Christian leaders wanting to have. And, and actually, that's an easier conversation to have. Um, they're not questioning the system, do you see? Um, so, so a few things here, like being able to name it and talk about it, 
I think is a huge thing. And I think that there is, you know, for me, you know, developing practices and a vocabulary of resistance and really understanding that in this world that we live in, that faith communities, religious traditions and practices are actually alternative practices Yes. Practices of resistance to yes. this work-centered world. Carolyn, the theological image that comes to mind as I listen to your naming of this particular reality that has been implicit and below the surface, we all feel it, but we don't have a language for it. That's the function of a prophet. A prophet is someone who calls something what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a prophetic quality to the insights of mm -hmm. your book, which I so appreciate. And I, maybe this is my prophecy now, I expect your book to be a conversation starter. I think mm -hmm. what we're having now is just the start of a different kind of conversation, especially with faith and religious leaders what is our practice and vocabulary of resistance that is natural and, and uh, native to our faith? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a counter argument here and kind of, I don't, to use economically, an opportunity mm -hmm. for faith leaders to be more true to their faith. Yes, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because there are studies of these um, you know, faith work initiatives and faith work kind of you know, Bible studies at work. It's interesting that the conversation, when people talk about that, they always talk about, well, we wish, um, that, and it's, it's about how do you bring religion to the workplace? How do you evangelize in the workplace? The philosopher James K.A. Smith has this wonderful concept of secular liturgies right? Mm. And what I'm arguing is that the corporation, that the workplace offers a very powerful liturgy, yeah. spirituality and practices and habits that we who are, you know, professionals in the United States breathe <laughs> and we practice this, but we just haven't named it as a religion. Yeah. And yeah. so the question here is, look, this is what we're dealing with. How do we, you know, and as you said, you know, how do we offer these alternative practices? In Silicon Valley, your value is dependent on your productive value, essentially. <laughs> and that's what everything is oriented around. Well, how does the church offer something else? How does it offer a different set of ends, practices, you know, ethics, and liturgies and the shaping of the soul and spirituality. Well, that's an awesome question to conclude our conversation on because it sets up a future conversation where I'd love to have you back, Carolyn. <laughs> Carolyn, thank you so much for spending time with my podcast, talking about your book and your insights. It's been um, a really scintillating and insightful conversation for me. I've learned so much. Thank you, David. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.